you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're going to continue our study of John's gospel this morning. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45 through the end of that chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some of them went out to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life. By your spirit, Lord, may it break into our hard hearts. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? the glory of your gospel. We're so thankful for the ways that you work, the ways that your providence plays itself out here. Lord, may we see and hear and grow this morning. Only you can do this, so would you be pleased to do just that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So we just saw this incredible event the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And here we're going to see some of the fallout. How can one event be so polarizing? How can it be so divisive? If you were alive September 11th, 2001, when America was attacked, it was a shocking thing. See, planes slam into 
buildings, and suddenly in our country, thousands of people died in an instant. But if you didn't immediately turn the TV off in panic, but you kept watching, you saw scenes also from around the world. So while we were stuck in grief and sorrow, others around the world were cheering in the streets. Do you remember that? Same event, two very different and disparate reactions. We see the same reality in presidential elections and maybe smaller elections, governor, mayor, all campaigning done and all there's left to do is vote. Then you, you hold the vote and one side wins and they're just elated and the other side are dejected and immediately plot and plan how to subvert the other candidate. One event, two very different sides. If you pay attention to college football at all, you know that one kick yesterday with two seconds left on the clock, one kick, two seconds left on the clock, set Tennessee, the entire state, just set them on end, elated. And an entire other state, the state of Alabama, utterly dejected today. I know because I've seen texts on both sides, it's unbelievable. And that's just a game. Polar division. And here we come to an astounding event that we talked about last Sunday. The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus coming to the tomb of a friend in defiance of death. Raising his voice, calling Lazarus to come out. And then he does. A heart that was lifeless began to beat, his lungs again filled with air, and he walks out of the tomb. And so far across John's Gospel, we've been given several amazing signs, and each come with their own measure of pushback. We've seen Jesus change water into wine. His followers believe in him, but others are confused. Why did you save the good stuff for last? The healing of the royal official son in Capernaum. This man believes no one is there to see it, but later we're going to see this same crowd that Jesus is around become very fickle and reject him. The healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. He heals a paralyzed man, and then we hear for the first time that the rulers want him dead feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. The crowd misunderstands who Jesus is and they immediately want to take him by force and make him king. And we t when he tells them what he has truly come to do, the true way that he has come to feed them, they walk away. They leave him. Jesus walking on water in John chapter 6. Following this, we read this, this discourse and the, the crowds again grumble about him about his family of origin, about his connection with the Father. He heals a blind man in John 9, and this man is put on trial not just once, but twice. And the synagogue concludes that he is a sinner, and the threat of death against Jesus, murder, grows even more. 
So how do you think it's going to go with something so drastic and so public as the raising of Lazarus from the dead? How are the people going to receive that? How about the Pharisees? What is the fallout here? And so we're going to look at this in a few ways. One, the plots of men. The plots of men. The plan of God. And the Passover begins. First, the plots of men. Before we get to the plots, though, we see that immediately some receive. They accept this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that is what Jesus did, they saw this miracle with their own eyes. It says they believed in him. And this is exactly what John wants us to do when we hear these signs, when we see Jesus working. This is the desired effect. Believe. Believe in him. Receive him. This is exactly what John is going after in this whole book. See this incredible thing and hear Jesus and believe in him. The focus for John is is not on what Lazarus' experience is like. We would think that suddenly John would stop and give us lots of insight. Like, here's what Lazarus thought. Right? Here's what it's like to be in a tomb for four days. You know, here's this great light that he saw. You get none of that. He's not interested in that at all. He's interested in us hearing the voice of Christ calling a dead man to life. And will we believe or not? Others reject the same event, the same Jesus. They're seeing the very same things unfold at this tomb. And it says this, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They already knew it was a charge situation. They already knew that many of the leaders, the Pharisees, the Jews wanted Jesus dead. And they they go to say, hey, we've got more ammo. They're seeing the exact same thing. And some believe and some throw him under the bus. Again, consider yourself. You've just seen what has unfolded at this grave. You've watched Jesus walk up and call, shout out to a dead man who then comes out and people have to unbind his cloths that bound him. You've seen all of that. And and this is your response. We're going to go after him. This gives us the ammo that we need to go after Jesus. It's really quite astonishing. The level of hardness of heart. The sheer rejection of Christ. But it gets worse. So they come to these leaders and we read, so the chief priests in 47 and 48 and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs if we... Let him go on like this. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come away and take away both our place and our nation. The chief priests and the Pharisees gather the council. 
What is that? It's the highest body that they had. The way that politics worked here was the Sanhedrin would gather 70 elders from various religious factions in Israel, and they called the shots. This is the leading political body for the Jews. They don't have complete sovereignty. They are obviously under Roman control, but they are given a certain measure of freedom concerning these things, a certain amount of latitude to to rule themselves under Rome. Notice what they gathered, what they said when they gathered together. One, they acknowledged that Jesus is performing signs. They cannot deny it. They don't reject the signs on their face. They admit that he is doing these good things. And then two, because of this, they see Jesus as a threat to both their place and their nation. And this place, we don't know exactly what they're talking about. It could be the temple. It could be their position of power. But those two go together. The very nation, the core of who they are, they see is under threat right here. Both of them they see as theirs. This is our place. These are our people. This is our nation. And he's threatening all of that. We've seen this in the the political powers of the day before. We've seen that they are threatened by the ministry of Jesus. The more he says and the more he does, the more they are exposed as frauds. Look, these are the political and religious elite of of the Jews. They should have it going on. They They should know who God is and who they are in light of it. But Jesus is threatening all of that. The real threat they see here is utter religious upheaval. If enough people follow Jesus, if he gets popular enough and everybody starts to go after him, we're going to lose our position, our power. Jesus has become so popular that we've already seen some people want to make him king. And they're like, hey, that's the last thing that should happen. If they do that, Rome is going to come in with a huge hammer and crush us, dismantle our temple and and wipe us out, scatter us. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, because some 40 years later, that's exactly what's going to happen. Rome is going to have enough and come in with a massive hammer and destroy the temple and scatter the people in diaspora. I think we have several lessons to learn even just here. One is this. Have you ever talked to someone about God or heard someone say something like this? If God would just do something right in front of me to show me or tell me about himself, then I would believe. If God would just do something so that I could see with my own eyes, then I would be good to go. Time and time and time again, the scriptures tell us otherwise. The same group of people saw the same event at the grave. 
Some had such hard hearts afterwards that they wanted to use it as ammunition to kill Jesus. And others believed. So if you're one of those people or you know someone like that, that's not the real issue. He could come and write himself in the sky and it wouldn't be enough because the issue is hardness of heart. It's not evidence. The issue is sin and death and blindness. Another way that we can think about this is this. To to what degree are we in our own lives willing to go to protect our own power, our own place, our own position? In order to do that, pragmatically, will we deny the truth that is right in front of us? What lengths are we willing to go to to protect our reputation? Another way to look at this, all the Sanhedrin were religious. Sadducees, Pharisees, priests, the high priest, we see him here. They all had high notions about the scriptures. They loved to hear the story of Abraham being called out of Ur. They loved the story of the parting of the Red Sea. With pride, they looked back on the power of the judges and God preserving the kingdom through all of that. David was like a hero. Solomon, Elijah, does it get any better than that? They had all of that right in front of them, and yet they were still more afraid of uprising and losing their place than they were of the truth. Because here they have one greater than David doing greater things right in their face, and they're willing to deny all of it and walk away. Sometimes religious people are the most bitter opponents to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Religious people hating the gospel, hating the truth that's right in front of them because it's going to cost. So here's Jesus raising the dead, his dead friend Lazarus, Here are the Sanhedrin, afraid of losing what they have, afraid Rome is coming in at any moment because of Jesus with a hammer to crush them. And into the scene comes the plot out of the mouth of the high priest Caiaphas. Look at verse 49 and 50 with me. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand what is, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You know nothing at all. Guys, I've got this. I'm in control. I've seen this before. I've dealt with usurpers before. You don't know anything. And then he, he puts forward this very elegant, very clean way to handle the problem. He says this, we need substitution. 
We need substitution. We need one person to die so that the nation can go on. If we kill Jesus, the whole nation is going to be fine. If he lives, we're all going to die. But if he dies, the rest of us can live. This is the argument used by those who hate Jesus to put him to death. Substitution. He dies in our place. That's the plot. This is the plot against Jesus. He is a substitute. We're all in a huge mess. Jesus is on the rise. We're going to lose our place and our people, so let's kill him. So that we can all live. It's an evil plot. It's a satanic plot to kill the very Son of God. So many people see the world in pragmatic ways. Here's a problem in front of us, so we're, gonna, we're willing to do whatever it takes to fix this problem, even if that means acting unjustly, even if that means lying, even if that means murder. It's going to fix our problem. This is not the Christian ethic. Not at all. Jesus teaches us that losing, laying down life, is greatness. Jesus himself will lay his life down for his friends, the greatest conquest ever achieved on this earth. Not pragmatism, not easy, but victorious. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is what? Folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So we see this earthly plot. And we should be astonished that their idea is one of substitution. Hey, if Jesus dies, the rest of us are good. So we come then to the plan of God. The plan of God. Jesus is again this threat and the religious authorities have this plot and then John takes us by the hand and gives us commentary on it. He's like, let me show you something. So we've seen Caiaphas, we've seen the Sanhedrin. John now turns our gaze and says, look at what God is doing right here. Listen to 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It really is beautiful. They have this plot against him. John is telling us that this earthly plot, this human plot over political power is is actually the, the plan and design of God himself. He's flipping the script from the mouth of the high priest, which Jesus created the priesthood. He is himself our great high priest, and he wanted this plot to come out of his seat of power. 
I want him to say it. I want him to say this idea of substitution is coming. It really is beautiful. Caiaphas was not out of his mind when he stated what he wanted to state. Calvin says this, quote, He vomited out the wicked and cruel design of putting Christ to death, which he had conceived in his mind, but God turned his tongue to a different purpose. He vomited out this wicked plot, and God turned his tongue for his own purpose. Ultimately, that purpose was a heavenly one. The plan to have a substitute to die to save the people. The substitution of Christ is not to get all the people out of their immediate political and religious danger that they feel. It is not that kind of substitution. The substitution of Christ is not going to preserve the seat of Caiaphas or any other leader. And it's not going to mean that the temple still stands when this is all said and done. It is not that kind of substitution. The substitution of Christ is is not even going to, to keep this nation together. They will be scattered. The substitutionary nature... Christ is one of atonement. Jesus was going to cover sinners with his blood. Shielding us by his death, by his sacrifice from the very wrath of God. Substitutionary atonement of Christ was going to satisfy the wrath of God against people. Substitutionary atonement of Christ was going to satisfy fully and utterly the justice of God against sin and guilt. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is the will of God to crush the Son in order to save His people. That's exactly what we heard in Isaiah. This is the substitution that Jesus brings. His atonement in view, our great, high, eternal king, an eternal kingdom, not our political kingdoms, not our political parties, not our political powers, a king and a kingdom that is eternal. That's his substitution. Substitutionary atonement, this this thing that comes out of the mouth of Caiaphas, one for many, is exactly the plan of God, and it's the heart of the Word of God. It works itself out throughout. First John 2, he's the propitiation. We heard this earlier for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The atonement turns away the wrath of God, and it is vast enough for you and me and everyone on earth. Time and time again, the Bible, Old and New Testaments teach substitution. It is a theme throughout. There they are, Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is laid down, the knife is raised, and then what? Hang on a minute, there's a ram over there, he's stuck. Use that. A substitute. The Passover lamb rather than the firstborn. Hey, kill a lamb. 
Smear its blood. It's going to be bloody. Smear it all over the doorpost and go in and eat the lamb and the angel of death will pass you by. Substitution. The entire sacrificial system of, of Israel. All of their history. Leviticus is a bloody book. What is it teaching? Substitution. Something else has to die or you're going to get it. All of that imagery, every single lamb is pointing to one. It's pointing to Christ, our substitute for sin. Either he dies in our place or we die eternally. We have to have a substitute. That's in the backdrop of John chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd, the one who does what for his sheep? Lays down his life. Why? Because they had to have a substitute. There's so many lessons we can learn from 51 and 52. It's remarkable that that the plot of man would be used and tooled to actually be the plan of God. God flips the plans of evil, wicked men for his own eternal purposes. And again, this is something we see throughout the scriptures. Remember Joseph. Jealous brothers, his good-looking coat. What are we going to do about Joseph and his mouth and this coat? Oh, I have an idea. Cast him into a well and then plot to kill him. We can't, guys, we can't go that far. So what are we actually going to do? We're going to sell him into slavery. Little did they know at the time that this Him being sold into slavery by his brothers would actually save their life. This plot against Jesus is way, way worse than this plot of Joseph's brothers against him. This is the highest crime ever committed by humanity. This is the the spotless Lamb of God. And they are conspiring murder against him. Piper says this, Quote, at the all-important pivot in human history, the worst sin ever committed served to show the greatest glory of Christ and to obtain the sin-conquering gift of God's grace. End quote. This is why Christianity is so upside down. This is why we unashamedly worship a crucified and risen Jew. It looks like this insane plot to snuff out a political rival and a religious threat. And God is planning to do this so that we might be saved. It's that place, that cross, ultimately, where sin is going to be dealt with and where we look to see the love of God for sinners. If you ever doubt the love of God, look at the cross. Look at his death. Why? Because that is his plan. That is how much he loves you. Earlier in the summer, we looked at Psalm 2. You should always keep that psalm in your pocket. It says, the nations rage and the people plot in vain. And it goes on. But but what does it say about God? in response to all our planning and plotting and raging against him, what is he doing? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at our plots. 
He knows good and well he can tool any plot, no matter how heinous it could possibly be, to his own good and perfect ends. We are like water to him. Water in his hands. He will make us flow whatever direction he wants us to flow. No plot will ever win against this sovereign God. Our plots will only serve his purpose. After all is said and done, what does Joseph tell his brothers? Do you remember? It's a fantastic text. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as you are today. He saved the known world. He did it. By being cast into a pit, a pit and sold by his own brothers, nations would survive starvation. It's really remarkable. The same thing going on in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him and in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's one side of it. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He uses the plot of men to bring about his eternal and heavenly plan. There are more lessons here. Verses 51 and 52 make it clear that God's intent by atonement is to gather scattered sheep. Why this heinous plot? Why the death of the, the, the very Son of God? Why this light breaking into the world, the Passover lamb, all that is loaded into who Jesus is? It's this. So that we might be saved Here's what the good shepherd has come to do. He has come to, to gather his people, this, this nation, but not just this nation. Notice John is expanding out. He's saying every nation, every tongue, every tribe, this sacrifice is for all of us. All of this, the, the atoning work of Christ is to gather together the scattered sheep and to make them one. Out of all these disparate people, all the things that could potentially divide us in this world, he's saying the gospel, Jesus, crucified, buried, and risen, is designed to make us one. We'll hear so much more about this as we turn from the book of signs, which we're ending today, and look at the book of glory where Jesus is going to teach, he's going to have a lot to say about making us one. This is a central theme of what God is up to in the world. Taking disparate people from every language, tongue, and tribe, breaking all those barriers, even barriers that we would put up in this room this morning, the things that could and should and may be dividing us today. He came to break them down and say, no, the tie that binds is not your color. It's not your nationality. 
The tie that binds is not your socioeconomic status. It's not your education level. It's not the kind of job you have or the aspirations that you share in your home. It's not any of those things. The tie that binds is the crucified and risen Christ. That's what makes us one. Why is this ingathering of the people of God so central to his purpose? First, because God himself is one. He is one. Second, because since the fall, we have been divided. As soon as the the fall happened, we began accusing each other and looking at each other with suspicion. I can't trust you. And I'm willing to throw you under the bus. And you can't trust me because I know you're going to throw me under the bus. Look at what Jesus is coming to do. Look at the force of what this plan is to gather us all back together. What was lost in the fall, the scattering, broken relationship with God and broken relationship with one another. He is coming to restore and redeem and renew as our sin substitute. What's the conclusion stamped over all of this? From that day on, they sought to put him to death. It's ominous. It's this glorious plan of God, and they're looking to kill him. All were wondering whether or not Jesus was going to come out and show himself. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The text also says something beautiful. It says the Passover is at hand. And John's book of signs takes us all the way back to John the Baptist and Jesus' kind of coming out moment, as it were. What What does John the Baptist say right at the beginning? He sees Jesus coming, and what does he say? Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he's ending the book of signs with, it's the Passover. Here he is. Here's your lamb. He's coming for you. He's coming in your place. He's coming to die for you. So the question that they ask is, do you think Jesus is going to actually show up at the temple? Do you think he's actually going to come to Jerusalem? We know for the time being he went away. So what is the answer? What did he do? Yes, he came. Like a lamb to slaughter. Though he had no guilt, he's not even going to open his mouth. He goes to the temple where he teaches and preaches glory. He goes out at night, across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. There he'll be betrayed by a kiss one of his own. Under false pretense and with blasphemous charges, he would be tried, beaten, paraded as a king, flogged, marched through the streets of the city to the place of the skull where he would be lifted up, nailed to a cross as a substitute 
one king dying for a nation, but not just one nation, to take people from every nation, from this room, and call him his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth that that these evil plots of man will not stand, but you use them. Even the words of the high priest Caiaphas that year to bring about glory. We're so thankful for it. Would you give us, again, eyes to see and ears to hear this glory? Would you shape us by these truths? But we see how big you actually are. Lord, help us. Even now, prepare us, Lord, to commune with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.